Welcome to Tamarindo Podcast. Hosted by me, Brenda Gonzalez, a political nerd and nonprofit capacity builder. And me, Ana Sheila Victorino, a queer well-being enthusiast and mindset coach. We are a Latinx empowerment podcast discussing politics, culture, and how to keep your calma with well-being practices and self-love. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Tamarindo. We're back with some poets. Ana Sheila, how are you? What's up? What's up, y'all? Estoy muy bien. I'm visiting my family. Really happy about that. I haven't seen them in a minute, so it's really nice. Especially I have two sobrinitas and they're so little. And I feel like when you don't see them for a few months, you feel like you're missing a year because they're developing and growing so fast. So it's been really cute to be with my family. But getting to the show today, our guest is Danieli Rodriguez del Orbe. She is a poet, spoken word artist, and cultural expression activist from the Dominican Republic, raised in the Bronx. In her writing, she explores womanhood, gender, love, and migration. Honestly, y'all, this is one of the most beautiful conversations I've had the opportunity to have, and I'm excited for y'all to listen. But I want to kick it off by acknowledging that May is Mental Health Awareness Month. It's something we talk about in the episode, and I want to start off by asking you, Brenda, what does being well mean to you? What does that look like today? Yeah, no, thanks for asking. And of course, we've we've acknowledged that May is Mental Health Month and um, been observing or uh, I guess listening to a lot of podcasts around this topic. And something that stuck out for me right, right now, a series that's really, really great is Death, Sex and Money is doing a whole series on mental health. And it, they're interesting because it's a podcast, but they're doing a live call in. So people are calling in and they're having therapists and psychotherapists and people in this space um, respond. And from there, I, I something that really stuck out for me is that when you're well, it, it, we're all going to have our ups and downs. We're going to have feelings. Then we're not always going to be super happy, right? And it's really being well right. is being able to manage those ups and downs and, and how to cope with them in healthy ways. So that's what being well is. Um, it really... That struck me as like, okay, yeah, sometimes I feel down. Sometimes I, I have what, what feels like imposter syndrome. Sometimes I'm not all the way my, my happy self. And it's really just how I cope with that, that I notice in that in me and that I'm not doing things like drowning it in alcohol you know, or, or doing behaviors that are not healthy. So that, that's how um, that definition resonated with me. And so that's how I feel well, is that I can acknowledge when I'm not feeling well and can navigate and manage that and cope with it in healthy ways. How about you, Anasheda? What does it mean to you? Well, Brenda, that is exactly the very closest definition that I have come up for myself. So it sounds like a lot of folks, or maybe this is, I got it from just listening to different places or just from experience. So it sounds like, yeah, I mean, very similar. It, the way that I would describe it is, is knowing what brings you back to a place of peace and equilibrium and having the resources and tools to get there. And that is easier said than done. And that requires a lot of work. It requires having the access, financial access to resources, having the just the access from doing the, the work to get access to those tools and resources. And yeah, knowing that life is a series of ups and downs and being well is being able to manage those better. Yeah. Before we move on, I do want to acknowledge some, I, I can't recommend this series enough and I'll, we'll put it in the show notes. But something else that that um, is happening is that there truly is a change. Like there are many people experiencing mental health challenges right now in a, in a way that feels remarkable, according to these professionals that are speaking. And there is a crisis of loneliness and there is um, young people are, especially 
young girls of color are committing suicide. There is a real crisis. So um, at the same time as as we've described what what it means to be well, I love that we're also taking the time to talk about some of the challenges that continue to be pervasive in this space, especially access. So the most recent episode in this series really talked about how, like, even when folks want to access the resources and want to be well and can recognize in themselves that they need that additional support, insurance is a is a huge issue. There was um, a, a ju- I just listening in. I'm here at my parents' house and uh, they watch a lot of TV and it's always very loud. So <laughs> from five rooms away, there was a report today again because it's it's Mental Health Month. They were talking about um, this new segment about one of the challenges that there's so many people here in California, in Orange County, Southern California, that need that support in Spanish, and it just doesn't exist. So um, I, that's another huge issue is this idea of access. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 100%, 100%. Yeah, it's like having the resources and tools and recognizing that, like, for a lot of folks, that's not, that's easier than done, not only because it takes work to be able to get there, but because so many of us have less access to that. And if you even focus on black and brown and, and queer people and just folks that, that um, just folks that we like we have a we we already have a higher stress level than 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 people that are not those identities. Right. We're already coming in with with so much more that we have to overcome um, to even get be well or have be able to access resources 100 percent. Yeah. Um, so I have a workplace wellness uh, business. And one of the things we've noticed in, in some of the meetings that we have is that a lot of folks more than getting, you know, a lot of the the coaching that we were providing and, and, and these resources, a lot of folks are actually just really grateful even to be in community with other folks and, and sharing this in community. So people are looking for community and it really connects with this epidemic of loneliness. So I wanted to, to echo that because we're seeing it in the work that, that we're doing. What with is my, the name of your company, business. Anna Shayla? Tell us a little bit more about it. <laughs> yeah, my company is called Bask and Being. And it's actually, so it's like bask and be basically. (laughs) Um, And it's cute because actually bask um, are the initials of the original three founders. Which includes you. (laughs) Includes me and AS is Ana Sheila. So that's the the bask in it. So yeah. Oh, so I wanted to do a quick little exercise in honor of Mental Health Awareness Month. And also because, you know, we like to include calma as much as we can. So there are moments where we might feel, you know, out of balance, um, not in a state of peace. So here's an exercise that you can use if you are maybe feeling like an anxiety spiral or you're catastrophizing. I have a hard time saying that word. Can you say that word for me, Brenda? Probably not, girl. I'm an immigrant too. Catastrophe. Yes, all kids over here. Catastrophizing. I said it. Yay. Anyways. So if you've <laughs> so if you find yourself in these moments when you're like having a spiral, you are thinking that everything is going terribly, what you can do is you can focus on one thing. Um, so for example, let's say you're in a, in a, in a room, you can look at everything that is, that's around you in the room and just, ide- just make observations like the wall is white, there is a cup, there is a chair. And so just making those observations gets you back to just a state of calm. So that's one thing you can do. Another thing that you can do is journal. Y'all know I'm a big journaling um, Journaling theme, freak. Yeah, getting... get that journal out. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Put your thoughts on paper. It'll help. And then the last thing you can do um, is the gratitude practice. Um, and, you know, sometimes there may f- it may feel like you don't have, like it's really hard to think of something that you're grateful for. 
But it's a really good practice in these kinds of moments to really, really try hard. And even if it's like something in front of you, like my journal or like my cup of coffee. Um, and if you're having a hard time with like thinking of something that you're grateful for, something that might help is like, What's something that made me smile like yesterday or this morning or, or whenever? Count your matracas, so those girls, are three, everybody, girls and boys and, and folks, listeners, count your matracas. I will say too, Anna Sheila, as you're describing this, um, many, many years ago when we first became connected and you were with Baskin Being and you were doing these like stress, I forget your official name of it, but it was basically like a stress redu reduction boot camp. It's my way of describing yes. it. Yes. <laughs> but one of the exercises since I was first introduced to it through you is that that a practice of observing and and it's doing it without judgment, like actual facts, like the wall is yellow, not saying the wall is ugly. The wall is making me sad. Right. No, 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 no judgment. But just that exercise of listing facts is very calming. So I am testament that these things work. So she's a testament, y'all. Yeah. So we hope that's helpful for you. Well, great. Thank you for that really helpful pause and moment to reflect on mental health. You all know that's important to us. And now I'm really, really excited to get to our guest, Danieli Rodriguez del Orbe. And her work has been featured by the Bronx Museum of Arts, Museum of African Diaspora, MOAD, People in Español, NPR, and more. She's a recipient of the Define American Immigrants Arts Fellowship and Grant for an upcoming film project on Dominican migration. So let's hear from her now. Today, I'm so excited to speak to Danieli Rodriguez del Orbe, a poet, spoken word artist, and cultural expression activist. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to start with your self-description because I love the term cultural expression activist. I had never read that before. So tell me, what does that mean and how do you embody that through your work? Um, I mean, it's it has two meanings for me, right? There's cultural expression activism, which is the art of um, defending the power right to be creative within social movement right um and and defending the ability to create narratives that are against the status quo wherever that status quo may be um and then there's cultural expression activism by having your body your your body of work embody um social justice and having it have some kind of tie to whatever is happening in in our society, whether that is um, immigration, uh, police brutality, anything that ties into the betterment of our society. I think it's and doing it in a way that is expressive, whether that poetry, music, art, um, and having that be the center of your work is, is what I call cultural expression activism. That's beautiful. I love that. And I think words are so powerful and how we use them are so powerful. So I, I loved reading that and I really appreciated your, your, how you define it. Okay. So, I mean, one of the things I love about writers and poets is like when I get to encounter your words, your work, I'm always just struck back by the power of, of the word. And, and I was looking through some of the things that you've written and I, and I saw this and I'm just going to read it out loud. I'm an anthology of all the Dominican women they warned you about. Get on your knees and, and thank them. And I was just like, That is, <laughs> I was shook. So I would love, <laughs> I would love to hear from your words. What does it mean to be an anthology of all the Dominican women? And what does it mean to get on your knees and, and thank them? So uh, that, that quote came from uh, having encountered the way that Dominican women are viewed um, in New York City. At the time I was in New York, I grew up in the Bronx, but I was born in the DR and migrated when I was a kid. 
And I've realized that in other cultures, Dominican women have this, this stigma of being wild, um, of being extremely jealous of, but really of being the kind of women ha- that don't take shit. Right. Um, I believe my, my friend Lorraine, who's also a fighter, um, has the saying. She says not a lot of people can take the fact that Dominican women somos leona. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's like it, it's that same vibe of like Dominican women, and 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 the reason as to why we become that right varies. And obviously, there's a lot of trauma, but this ability to not take shit right and to be able to fight back against so much, especially the patriarchy. I think Dominican women really challenge the way that we learn to view Latinas, right? And this idea that Latinas are the kind of women and against stereotypes that are the kind of women that are always at home, you know, that take care of their men. And especially in black spaces, there's always this expectation that Latinas are quote unquote more submissive. Um, And it's just simply not true. Whoever encounters the Dominican women knows that Dominican women stand up for themselves. They speak very loudly. They walk into a room and demand respect. And I also grew up in a matriarch. And I grew up with a group of women who supported each other in raising their kids, um, who, por cosas de la vida, became single women, single mothers, and really began created a circle of, 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 of support for each other. Um, and I'll give you an example. Growing up, my mom and my aunt lived in the same building. So we all migrated and we lived in the same building. And whenever my mom was at work, I was at my aunt's house and my aunts were cooking for me and taking care of me. And whenever my mom was around, you know, earlier before I guess before I had migrated, it was my mom's turn. So my aunt would work a hundred jobs and my cousins would be home alone and my mom would be raising them while my aunt went out to work. And that's how I grew up. I grew up in a family of six daughters and um, a grandmother who also became a single woman when my grandfather passed. So then to hear all that stigma about, you know, Dominican women and how we're just so hard to deal with and so hard to handle, it was just like, I am an anthology of all the Dominican women who raised me. And get on your knees and thank them because we are the ones that are like upholding these households on our own, that are the the breadwinners. Dominican women statistically also migrate at a higher percentage than Dominican men. Um, and most of them are single, are single parent households. So it was compiling all of that history, my upbringing, and then being out in the dating world and saying like, actually get on your knees and thank them. There's nothing to apologize for, mm. right? The Dominican raised me race me in a way for me to embody all that they are, but also <laughs> in the kind of generation that knows what to let go of. Mm, I love that part. Also what yes. to let go of. Yes. Of course. Yes. Always something to let go of. <laughs> yes. No, but that's, that's so beautiful and that's so powerful. And, and um, yeah, like I think that a lot of us share that experience and I'm, I'm Mexican, but I, in the same, in a similar way, also feel like I've been raised by 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 women my whole life and I've seen the power of women I've seen women be the breadwinners like I migrated because my mom got an opportunity to come to the U.S. she's who brought the family we came with my dad but it was my mom who like brought us you know so for sure and and it's a history that's very shared I think we do not give women enough credit and I think that we also learn to romanticize 
the hard life that women end up having because, you know, the patriarchy has it that they are supposed to hold everything at once. Right. So like even these days, you know, I, I question a lot um, whether we actually respect mothers and whether we give moms who um, who are raising their kids on their own enough credit and also enough support and whether we give just pregnant women at overall the 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 credit that they deserve for putting their body through a pregnancy and the implications and the you know the 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 health issues that can come from a pregnancy so you know it's just it's something that is evolving for me but definitely i definitely give all the props to the dominican women that raised me to my mom my tia my grandma my godmother all of them my cousins all of them it's so beautiful they are you and you are them no for sure. Yeah, beautiful. So, uh, both me and, and my my co-host, we we both are are, are Mexican immigrants. You're, you're an immigrant, so I want to talk a little bit about um, immigration and borders. And and again, another another line or not uh, other words that I, that I read from you that really struck me um, were, uh, and I'll read them again. They don't tell you that about borders. How they break you in half until you're never enough for either side. Yeah, I want to stop for a second so y'all can feel that because so many of our listeners are, if they're not immigrants, they're also children of immigrants. And and I read that and I was like, wow, that really captures so much of the real pain we experience as folks between borders who've been affected by borders. And and, and that pain obviously varies depending on our status and our immigration story. And, and so it, it it's obviously varying, uh, varying degrees of painful, pero para, for all of us, like that, you know, I think a lot of us can resonate with that. So can you tell me a little bit about what how what those words mean to you today and what is what is your relationship with borders i wrote those words in the context of you know having been undocumented from you know from the time that i was like 8 years old all the way to 21 and uh realizing that even in my return even as a green card holder no one told me how an american and non-Dominican, I would feel at all times, right? We have this idea that like when people migrate and especially when children migrate, like they have this ability to assimilate, they learn English, they go to school here, they become, you know, American kids. And that to me was very real for a very long time, but I never truly felt like an American. And, you know, for me, like as a Black, you know, as a Black person, I never felt Black American, because Black American culture was just so different from my own. Very similar in a lot of ways. And that has to do with, you know, our, I think our, and, and I call it our pre-colonization DNA that still seeps through and shows us our similarities. At the same time, um, I, it, it was not my culture, right? There were, there were, there were a lot of um, yes, uh, social stuff that like, and, and I'll say like, mainstream stuff that I was just will go over my head. You know, I still go to parties and they're throwback parties and I don't know the R&B <laughs> song. I don't know the rap song from like the early 2000s. So there's a feeling of discomfort and like facing that, that like, I always say I was either too young or too immigrant. Mm. Uh, because like if I, I, when I migrated and I was eight, that was 2003. And like, I didn't know English and I didn't learn fully English until later on. And even then I was still listening to bachata, merengue, reggaeton. I wasn't really in American culture. 
Um, but then when I went to the DR, I would get teased about the way that I spoke Spanish. I would get teased that like I had a different accent that sounded extranjero. Um, and even though I'm fluent in Spanish, it was about the lexicon that I have picked up working with immigrants, right? So then realizing that like no one, no one in my life was having those conversations with me of like, do you feel that, that feeling of discomfort of like never truly being enough for either side? Um, and I think border in that line is very, um, it's very abstract. It's, it for me is very, is a metaphor for migration rather than the border mm -hmm. itself um, because the border was not really my experience, but rather that feeling of like never truly being enough. And the imagery, right, of like a border splits something in half and then you're never truly complete. One one part of you stays on one side and the other part stays on the other. Um, and that's exactly, that's the best way that I could describe that feeling that so many of us feel. So and now you work in immigration, right? Tell me a little bit about uh, what you do and, and also like how you're feeling about what's been happening in, in this country and, and, you know, what we've been hearing the last few weeks and what's been going on. Um, last week was just a very hectic week. In immigration world, uh, you know, the Biden administration released a uh, released a term the confirmed termination of Title Forty Two, which was a Trump policy that kept people outside of the U.S. Um, it, while they were applying for asylum. So they didn't admit people um, before they applied for asylum. Last week was a very hectic week for immigration world because the Biden administration terminated Title Forty Two which is a policy that came about um, during the pandemic. It was a Trump policy, um, Trump administration policy. And it was basically a policy that claimed that because of public health during the pandemic, we couldn't allow people to come in to go through their process of asylum. In the past, the way that the asylum process was, was that you would present yourself at the border or to a, a CBP agent, border patrol agent, and you would tell them, I want to apply for asylum this is my story They would take notes and then you will you would essentially enter the asylum um seeking system and you would be admitted into the us to be able to fight your case the title 42 policy basically said that you're not able to enter the us if you're applying for asylum so it led to uh, hundreds of people being stranded on the mexico side of the border with nowhere to go until they heard from, uh, you know, an immigration judge or, or someone that could get to them, even though at the moment um, the process to apply for asylum was, was so incredibly um, complicated. So then ended up having, creating havoc on the other side of the border where people are camping out and, you know, forced to stay there until they're able to present their case, um, until they're able to get some kind of, you know, uh, path, pathway to asylum. Um, what the Biden administration did in, in, in terminating Title 42 was that it wasn't, they didn't just end Title 42 and go back to normal, but they also, um, wrote and, uh, wrote and exercised a, a more restrictive policy. And it's technically an asylum ban. And what they did was that they required, um, people that were seeking asylum that went through different countries to, they're requiring people that are going through different countries to get to the U.S.-Mexico border to apply for asylum in those countries first before they come to the U before they show up to U.S.-Mexico border. And the other part is that if someone is removed from the U.S. and they try to re-enter once they apply for asylum in the U.S., um, they are barred for five years or more. 
And this is an issue because, you know, especially Black immigrants, and I'll speak specifically for Black immigrants because we hear so much about non-Black immigrants in the news, but Black immigrants is that a lot of Black immigrants are coming from African countries or from Caribbean countries, and they are forced to go through different countries in order to get to the Mexico-U.S. border. So essentially what you're doing is that you're making a very group, very big group of people who are predominantly Black ineligible for asylum, which essentially is is against um, United Nations and um, United Nations international law. So um, it has been agreed upon that asylum is a human right. Right. And the U.S. is going against the kind of work that it does abroad, which is like, you know, creating the, protecting the pathway to asylum in, 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 in other countries. So what ends up happening is that, you know, Black immigrants who are fleeing for their lives Fleeing for their life. And when I say fleeing, I really mean imagine the most traumatic, horrible stories that you can possibly imagine, because that's the reality of a lot of these people. Um, going through different countries because they needed to get out of their own countries with the fastest visa, with the fastest way to get out. You just buy a ticket anywhere um, so that you can get to a country where like you can actually have you can actually apply for asylum and has an asylum system, an asylum system that is quote unquote made to be unbiased. A lot of these people are unable to apply for asylum in other countries like Mexico and Salvador and Honduras. A lot of those countries are extremely anti-black and they are not welcoming black immigrants the way that we think they are. Right. Even, even within Mexico, black immigrants are arriving to get to US Mexico border and they're facing extreme violence. Mm. Drug cartels are, um, killing people who are trying to cross. Um, they are kidnapping people thinking they have ties to other places. So there's a lot of violence going on right now at the border because of these policy and these sanctions that the U.S. has passed and that has created this very big influx of people who are literally just have begun to settle down there waiting for their turn. A lot of these people obviously do not speak English or um, they don't understand the asylum process, process overall, and they're not getting any assistance. It's not like the U.S. government is saying, hey, this is a new policy. This is what you're going to need to do from now on. We're having these people, you know, walk you through their process. It's just like policies are changing and these people have no idea. Um, right. There were, there were a lot of organizations that went down to the border last week, and that's what they saw in speaking to people. A lot of them do not even understand the process. And if that wasn't um, anti-Black enough, you know, the U.S. created this app where like people could apply for um, for asylum and like, you know, submit their cases and you need to kind of do a face scan and things like that. These apps are made with artificial intelligence that do not recognize black faces. Mm. So Black immigrants are trying to apply for asylum and trying to get access to these apps and the apps are not even working for them. So. There's a lot going on that the U.S. government is trying to, you know, trying to uh, uh, escape or trying to hide from the public eye. That is actually the reality of a lot of these people. So there's a crisis happening at the U.S.-Mexico border in a way that we haven't seen in a very long time. And, and the U.S. government is passing policies that don't take human beings into consideration and instead just create more harm than good for not only the people in Texas who are like on the other side of the border 
um, or from some of these other border states, but also for the people on the other side. This desperation um, and and poverty and suffering that's happening um, is very much real. And, you know, there's, there's just a lot of human rights violation going on from the U.S. from the U.S. government, along with you know, um, the Mexican government. Thank you. I mean, it's heartbreaking. It's it's infuriating, and I appreciate you taking some time to shed light for folks that don't know the the intimate details of, of what's been going on. Because we need to know, and I, and I want to know, like, what what is it that folks can do? Because I think if after hearing this, you don't feel called to take action. Um, I don't know. <laughs> so what what can we for folks that maybe are just kind of getting up to date on what's been happening? Um, how can we get involved? Uh, there is a, one particular organization that has been leading these efforts at the border. Um, it's called uh, Haitian Bridge Alliance. They have been the ones, you know, accepting donations, distributing donations, crossing the border back and forth and bringing things from inside uh, from inside the U.S. to outside of the U.S. They've been showing up, hiring lawyers, um, you know, speaking with government officials to see if there's any way that we can find, uh, you know, a solution for this, a permanent solution. So um, look up Patient Bridge Alliance and CUSP. Um, CUSP is a uh, a coalition of organizations that are also doing this work within the U.S. So like maybe it is that you can volunteer to go down and help out, but you can get involved in the policy work that's happening every single day um, to change some of these policies for the entire country, but also specifically um, policies like Title 42 and asylum bans. Thank you for sharing that. So it's one more time, Haitian Bridge Alliance. Is that correct? Yes, Haitian Bridge Alliance and CUSP is Communities United for Status and Protection. Wonderful. Okay. And we'll make sure to include the the links for that in our notes for everybody listening. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, so some of our toughest life experiences, I feel like, can also birth really beautiful things. I know that you recently wrote and directed a short film called Mejor Allá about what you learned during a visit to DR about your your parents' journey to, to give you a better life, right? Can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like, how the story was born? Um, was it uh, was it autobiographical? Cuéntanos. <laughs> yes, Mejor Allá is definitely autobiographical. Uh, it tells the story of my mom and my dad who loved each other very, very much uh, before I was born. And um, when I was born, they separated. And a lot of their separation had to do with this dream that my, my dad had to migrate um, and to leave the the country to come to the U.S. where a lot of his siblings were already at. But it, it it really speaks to the generation of my parents uh, and Dominicans that at the time in the in the 90s, the 80s and the 90s, which saw the biggest Dominican, uh, the the largest Dominican migration, 
um, you know, the generation that they come from where migration was seen as the end all be all that it, that was the future that was what needed to be done in order to progress. And the story of how it was essentially that dream to do better that led them to go their separate ways because both of them were dreaming about better in a very different way. Hmm. Um, and they were dreaming up a future for me that was not aligned um, with each other. And that explains how my dad came first and then my mom left later. And also the pain that was there, right, of, of having a partner who decided to leave regardless of what family he had and of a woman who said, well, leave and I'll figure it out. And her alternative ended up migrate, being migration too. Um, my parents, it was, it, was, it, was it was a very interesting process because my parents do not get along and they both told their story separately. And when the film was released, that was the first time that each of them was hearing each other's version. <laughs> I think that brought up a lot yeah. for both of them, but especially for my mom, she was like, why were you? And I'm like, mom, like learning to, <laughs> learning to, as their daughter, right? Learning to see that they both had different, they both have a different narrative to what happened, but both of their narratives centered me. And I think that's something that so many immigrant parents go through, right? Like that their kid goes first and in their own ways, their dreams were aligned because, you know, there's a line in, 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 in the, in the, in the film that's very close to, you know, I am not, I am not the dream for my parents. I was the inspiration for it. So like I was not their dream. The dream was migration, but I was the inspiration for that migration. Um, so I just met my parents at their youth and where they were at and try to figure out how to tell their story in a way that spoke about the elephant in the room, which was what do we what do we give up when we decide to dream beyond and dream beyond can be a metaphor um, or it can be very literal dream beyond your country. Right. And my parents were dreamers and they were unable to fulfill their their personal dreams, their dreams as people, as individuals. But now I get to go back and forth to the DR. I get to work in the U.S., go back and move for three months, which is what I did and become that dream. And it's not something that I asked for. That's another conversation, right? Um, it's not something that I envision taking on, but it's just the way it is. Right. And Mejor Aja, right? The, 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 the name of the film, what is Aja, right? Mm -hmm. And I guess, I'm all, I guess you have to watch it. Um, <laughs> but what, what is Aja, yeah. right? Mejor Aja. Um, there's something that my dad says towards the end. He says, you know, with the experience I have now and with everything that I know, if you ask me, would I do it again? The answer will be no. And that's something that I think a lot of our immigrant parents don't really want to say out loud because this country for them has given them so much. It has given their kids the ability to do so much. But my dad was very real. He said, you know, 
I wouldn't do it. And then he said this, which like just destroyed me. He says, maybe I wouldn't be in the financial position I am now, but at least I would be happy. And my God, oh man, that broke everybody in the room. Me when I heard it, you know, because we don't want to see our parents or people that have regrets and as people that dream beyond the life that they created for themselves. We want to see our parents as these like adults who married and had these kids and are completely fulfilled with their lives and they did everything they could. And we love to romanticize our parents for being our parents. But when you hear your parent be a man and be an individual and be a person of their own outside of you, what do they tell us? Right. And what my dad decided to tell me was that in fact, no, it was not worth it. Yeah. And that's narrative that we don't get to hear often. Right. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, my God. I feel like there is so much that was running through my mind. And there's so much to un- unpack there, even like just like that um, tension, even between security and like being co- financial security, whatever security you want and like being and what does joy mean to you? Right. Like that tension. There's the also thing just thinking about. Yeah. Like asking your parents that that question, like I've never asked my mom that. And like, what would she say, you know, or, or even just reflecting back on, 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 on their journey to coming here. And I think the film also touches upon like the difference between men and women and the way they're conditioned to see the world. Mm. And then I, I try to challenge my mom and I said, mom, like, stop answering on my behalf, like on something that has to do with me. Like you as a woman, like, what do you feel as your own person? And she said, you're asking me to do something that I'm just not going to do. I am not me without you. And like, that was also real, right? Because like, you know, what does it mean to be a parent and like your dreams, you kind of, your heart lives outside of you and so do your dreams, right? And for a lot of mothers, especially for me, I was I grew up an only child. It was only me and my mom. So I can understand how like my life was shaped around what I could give you and how I could lift you up. What do you mean to separate myself now? And I think part of that is fear. You know, who are you outside of me, mom? Um, And when do our parents get to do that for themselves? You know, I think now as millennials and as like, you know, younger generation, we see motherhood and we have these very, you know, these very big concepts like motherhood and we're able to separate ourselves and I have to take care of me before I take care of you. Like we have that language now, but did our parents. Yeah. I'm so excited to watch your film for real. I'm so excited. That sounds amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's short. It's like a little short film, but it's, I, it's my heart, my entire heart went into it. So yeah, no, beautiful. So we are recording in May, which is Mental Health Awareness Month. And this is a topic that's so dear to my heart. And honestly, what we do, what I do with the podcast, also my small business, we're, we're very much dedicated to, to well-being and, and mental health. And, and um, so I know that you've spoken very candidly about your deep depression and, you know, acknowledging that that you're not a mental health expert, but I wanted to hear um, a little bit more about your personal experience and what you might want to share with folks that are perhaps, you know, passing through a period that is deeply dark. Um, what was it like for you to get out of that place? Um, and what might you share with also folks that maybe have friends that are in that kind of place? Yeah, um, my depression came very unexpectedly. Um you know, I've been someone who like has never had any and trigger warning. Um, uh, had never had any suicidal thoughts. 
Um, and it's not something that I ever related to. I got, I got sad and I became a little bit depressed when I went through breakups and, you know, eventually I would feel better. But the kind of depression that I'm talking about is when you have no hope. And I think that's what took me by surprise. You begin blinded, um, by the hopelessness. And it's a kind of hopelessness that is so, so, so deep inside of you that you cannot see yourself coming out of it. Um, you begin to believe that what is the point, um, that everything you do is kind of pointless, that there isn't really a purpose for any of this. And I'm very fascinated with space and, uh, and, you know, and for me, it was just like, we're just on this planet, like we're specks in the universe. We are, you know, we are so insignificant that like, you know, what's the point of standing up and going to work if like in the universe, the grand scheme of things in the universe, it doesn't really matter. So I was in a very, very deep, dark place. And um, I realized that like, when I began to get those thoughts, I realized that I, I, I decided to trust the me that wanted to live. And I just remember saying, like, I remember when I didn't used to feel like this. I remember, I remember, I remember. And I, I looked for help. I got to therapy and therapy is not, therapy is not something that you get into and then your depression goes away. It's something that allows you to detangle where the thoughts are coming from and what is actually causing you to feel the hopelessness. For me, you know, I don't think my depression was chemical, even though there's a certain change in your brain after you go through depression. But I think it was for me, was a very long history of self-betrayal that landed me in a bed and unable to move. Um, and when I say self-betrayal is, it starts slow. It starts with not knowing how to say no, um, going in and over your going in over your head at work, um, going out with friends but not being really present because that's not what you want to be doing, and then having all these things um, feel like you don't know yourself. Like you know, I used to enjoy this, but now I don't, and now I don't know what I actually enjoy. It comes with you know isolating yourself and not really realizing that that's what you're doing. My depression manifested in, in just burnout. I was just burnt out from everything around me and I couldn't handle anything, but yet I still had the memory of all the things that I could handle. So I put more things on my plate, hoping that I could get more done. Mm. Um, on the aftermath of that, I've, I've come to realize that I've come to really, 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 really respect people that have dealt a lifetime of have dealt with a lifetime of depression. I've learned to really respect what it means when someone tells me that they're not doing well, um, that they want to be alone, that, you know, I've, I've began to really understand how fragile we all are and how complicated it is to feel like you don't want to let your people down, but you also don't want to be here anymore. Something that my therapist said was, Angeli, I don't think you want to die. I think what you want is the pain to stop. And that was that was very real. Um, 
now <laughs> I think that the the most advice I can give people who are who have people in their lives who are suffering from depression is to show up in whatever way they need you to. Not in the way you want to show up, not in forcing them out of the house, not in telling them we'll come out. It's ask them, how do you need me to show up for you? And when you are truly worried about someone's well-being, be in company with them, be alone with them. And that means like if you are in company with them, they might be in the other room and you might be in the living room and you're not asking them to engage with you. You're just there so that they know that there is somebody there. Um, and meet people where they're at. Sometimes, you know, people need rest. Sometimes people need an intervention. Sometimes people are abusing drugs and alcohol and they need to know that that's what they're doing. Um, and I also am a big believer that sometimes people need to hit rock bottom to truly understand whether they want to keep going or, or whether they should discuss with someone why they don't want to keep going. Right. Um, and yeah, I, I, I guess I, I, I went off tangent and I don't know much to say, but I think this is my first time speaking about my depression publicly. And the only thing I can say is that after my depression, I began to know me in a way that I never knew before. Because for a long time, I didn't feel like I was capable of going through as much pain as people who in my life who did, who like actually suffer from depression. And then when it happened to me, it, it gave me a really big understanding on why the everyday decisions and how you take care of your life actually add up long term and how a lot of life is creating patterns for yourself so that when you're triggered or whether something comes up, you know how to show up for yourself, even when you don't believe that showing up for yourself is going to make a difference. I think that was my biggest thing. Um, showing up for myself on days when I don't want to, um, just because I know that I want to live and I want to be here. And on days that I don't want to be, knowing that that feeling is going to pass. Even if I don't believe it, mm. it helped me a lot to have someone, my therapist, to have her by me and to trust somebody else that in the times that I didn't trust my own, the own voices in my head, I trusted that my therapist was someone who was certified and who had a degree in mental, <laughs> um, in, in, you know, mental health to tell me like, this is gonna, this is it, like, this is, you are validated in what you feel. This is going to pass. Right. And I'm like, there were times that I chose to believe her even when I didn't believe in myself. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's all. Um, show up for the people in your life and not just show up and send them a text saying, hey, you're good, but like show up to have vulnerable conversations because most time that feeling of disconnection comes from the inability of most people to have vulnerable conversations, to really engage with people in a way that's authentic and, you know, shows that shit. Like we, oh, we all struggle. Um, and prioritize the people that bring you joy. Yeah. Um, there's a poem, um, and I won't say it verbatim because I can't even remember the author right now, but there's a poem by probably a Black um, poet um, that says, you know, take note of where you feel your best. Um, what brings you joy? What makes you happy? Who are you around? What are you listening to? Where are you? 
what's surrounding you and then repeat. Mm. Um, so whenever you feel those that spark of joy, when you're out with your friends or where you're with certain people or where you're in a hike and you feel that sense of peace and take note of that and then do it again and again when you need to. And um, that's it. I'm going, um, I've been speaking a long time. <laughs> No, thank you. And and I, you know, coming back to vulnerability, I, I want to thank you so much for being so vulnerable and, and open with me and, and our audience. And I think that um, whether you've been in a in a very deep, dark place where you've had suicidal thoughts or where you've just been in a, in a dark place, not maybe not all the way there. I think that that what you shared, like, I, I actually wish I was like taking notes because I think that so much of what you shared will be helpful to so many people. And I think that a lot of what you shared, I, I can think of like how things that I did too when I've been in, in my deep, dark places and, and like what helped me get out of them. And it's a lot of what you shared. So, so I, I want to thank you for 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 your vulnerability and, and your openness in sharing that because I think it'll really resonate with a lot of folks and it'll be really helpful to a lot of folks that are, that are listening. So, so thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, okay. So I want to end the way we usually like to end our, our, our interviews is we like to ask folks, um, to share a matraca basura and, and calma. So um, I'd love to know what you are loving right now. What you gonna what you want to give a shout out to? Um right now I am loving spring, my backyard, the ability to plant stuff, the ability to see things grow. I grew up in New York City where seasons were only happening in Central Park because the rest of the the rest of the city was just buildings. Um, so it's been very good to me to be in a new home with with just nature around me and the ability to go out in my backyard and read a book. That's what I'm loving. Basura? I feel like... I don't know. Oh my God, that's such a big question. What am I letting go of? What's basura? Yeah, what you're putting in the um, trash right now. <laughs> what am I putting in the trash? I think in the trash, I am trying to put in the trash my self-doubt. Mm-hmm, that part. I'm, I'm, I'm actively fighting my self-doubt every single day. It's one of those seasons where I'm like, girl, like you're doing the best you can. It's okay. Like, trust your gut. This was the right decision. And um, what's the other one? Well, first of all, I just want to say that's that's so interesting because, I mean, it's a reminder that every single person, it, you know, struggles with self-doubt because if y'all have been listening to this conversation, you're in, in, incredible and you're doing beautiful, amazing things. And I hope that you have people around you that, that are for affirming you every day because you get to <laughs> be reminded of that I every day. That. For sure. I need that. I Most people in my life, when they really get close to me, they say that they're like, yo, like, I would have never expected this from you. Like, but I'm like, you know, there's just this voice in my head that I always wants to do better or always wants to feel like I could have done better. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So actively working on my self-doubt. Yeah. Um, and what's the other one? Calma. So what is keeping you, what is keeping you grounded right now? Friendship, 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 friendship. I mean, like my friends. Yeah. Platonic love, love. <laughs> Yeah, definitely platonic love. Um, yeah, my friends have just been showing up for me and 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 bringing me the sense of peace and calm when I am at my worst. And 
I'm a very, I isolate when I'm going through stuff. And for the first time, I'm like challenging that and being like, well, not for the first time, but I'm, I'm actively challenging that and saying, yo, I'm not good. Can you talk? And it's proven to me to be so, 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 so helpful. And, um, I'm very, very grateful for my homies today and yesterday. Beautiful. We all get to ask for help. And I also hope that you make time to celebrate yourself in these milestones, these beautiful milestones that that you're reaching. Um, Is there anything, last thing you want to leave the listeners with, anything you wanted to share that you didn't get to share, or it could just be where folks can find you, follow your work, anything else you want to share? So just Google my name, I guess, because (laughs) all my... Maybe it's not uh, a a marketing strategy to have all my usernames be different, but I have a very long name and my entire name doesn't fit. So I have to go for different stuff. So um, just please look me up on Google D'Angeli and my Twitter and Instagram will come up. Um, Stay in tune with the work. I have a chat book of poetry that, you know, speaks on migration, but mostly love um, that you can purchase on my website at D'AngeliRodriguezDolore.com. And um, just be in tune with the work. I'm I'm already working on a second film project. So that's in the works for probably next year. And it's all about migration and um, Dominican migration, if folks are interested and love. So yeah, that's that's all. Beautiful. Well, thank you so, so much for being on the show. This has been an amazing conversation and I can't wait for our listeners to hear this. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was a very vulnerable conversation. Y'all, the conversation with Danieli is honestly everything we hope for on Tamarindo. It inspires us to take action. It is deeply relatable. It reminds us of our humanity, of the fragility and the importance of being well. So I hope that you all walked away with beautiful things to reflect on and and put into action in in your daily life. So with that, Brenda, what's getting your matraca this week? Well, my matraca, even though I just talked about coping coping in healthy ways, um, I'm really proud and excited and in love with my group of friends who literally we have a wine cult we have a logo wine cult (laughs) there's an instagram account wine cult we're really into natural wines that's something that connects us but more than anything these are all a group of women we are all um in our 40s just about some of us a little younger like for example me i'm not quite there yet but a little bit older and just like the amount of fucks that we give is going lower and lower and lower. We just don't give a fuck. And I love it. I love it. So that's my matraca. My matraca is my wine cult homies. I love that. And you know what? Let's call out there's a difference between coping with wine and enjoying wine. Yes, right? it's true. It's true. <laughs> um, but my matraca is similar. My matraca is... Um, new friends and platonic love. Um, it's been beautiful. You know, as you get as you get older, you get more clear on who you are. And even, and, and I feel like I'm still evolving, but you get more clear on what you need, what's good for you, what brings out the best in you, what brings, how you bring out the best in others. And so it gets really clear, like what kinds of folks are, are for you. But it's been beautiful for me being back and still seeing that there's a lot of other people that are also open to new friends. And then when you meet each other, you just know, you just know when someone is for you. So it's been really beautiful meeting folks that I haven't known very long, but you're like, oh, yo, like this is a beautiful love. This is a beautiful platonic love. And just meeting more people that speak my languages, my 
queer language, my, you know, spiritual language, basketball language, all the, you know, all the, all the liberation language, you know, like it's cute. So it's been really cute. So that's, that's my matraca. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll just say one more thing, just kind of connecting it back to this crisis of loneliness. Um, it's really important to try to nurture those, those relationships and foster those relationships. I, I, it was, you know, another challenge that I have a lot of my friends confronting, but my friends that, are, that have been single for a long time is this challenge of loneliness, but there's also this fear that you, or, or this pattern of kind of ascribing all these expectations to your partner when you really could be spreading that love by nurturing friends and family and spirituality. There's other places that other ways that you can fill your cup so that you, that, that challenge that, you know, the weight of not having a partner can be lessened. <laughs> and also we have to be real that our partners may not be there forever. Re relationships evolve, they change, people unfortunately pass away. So um, as we, we as a culture, as a society, think about loneliness, one way to combat that is to nurture those friendships and find those spaces and build that community. So matraca, double matraca <laughs> to that, to yeah. our friendships and our relationships. I, I love that. And I'll, you just, I'll say one more thing is like, you know, we get to break these ideas of what everything is supposed to look like. And, and I think that that's one, a, the reason that I'm grateful to be queer is that, you know, as you're exploring your identity, you already from the beginning have to sort of, you know, part with this idea of what your life, you thought your life was going to be like. And so that makes it easier to do it in so many other ways. And so one of the things that I've been grateful for as a queer person is that I've also it's allowed me to more easily open myself up to what relationships can look like and opening myself up to possibilities in relationships and love, but also family building too. Um, when, if I get to do that, I'm so open to what that could look like. Maybe it's me caring. Maybe it's my partner caring. Maybe it's me coming into a family that has, you know, where I'm co-parenting with a gay man. Like I'm so open to all of it. And I think that it's easier. It's been easier because I've had to do that work of just like throwing out the window, this idea of what life is supposed to look like. Right. Yeah. All right. So, Brenda, what are you putting in La Basura? Well, oh, my gosh. I mean, we're we're just rounding the corner into into Pride Month. Right. And when my friendships with folks that are uh, that are queer, my relationship with you, Anna Shayla, my other many, many, many deep friendships and people in my family has really shown me how vulnerable people that are queer or that ha that are that are um, away from this like quote unquote typical notions that society puts pushes on us how um you know fragile and how how important it is to build community and to feel acceptance right i am learning and accepting and knowing just how critical this stuff is and this ties into my basura because um, that is the point of pride, right? Is to to build these spaces so that folks can feel more accepted. And the Dodgers here in Los Angeles, they are they recently need to go to the basura. So let me let me get you, get you to that. Like that's who needs to go in la basura, and they need to go in la basura because they um they often have a pride event. There's Pride Day at Dodger Stadium, and they rightfully selected a group to honor for their um, important work. More you know more than a couple decades of important work of raising money for. LGBTQ causes, for reproductive justice, for amazing causes. They uh, rightfully selected this group to honor them. And then they took it back. So let me tell you, it's the, per the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. 
This is a, a, a wonderful group of people that I've had the pleasure of seeing out in the community. Specifically, there was a fundraiser a few years ago and they did Queer Loteria at um, Precinct in downtown LA. But they're an institution, they've been around forever and they very much deserve this honor of being recognized. But the way that they present, they're, they're in drag, they're in drag and they're nuns. Um, and so some folks from outside of California pressure the Dodgers to kick them out of this recognition. They they clutch their, their Catholic pearls at this when they're not clutching their Catholic pearls at so much more worse and horrible things, actual damage to human beings. So it's just repulsive and disgusting that the Dodgers don't have a backbone to stick to their conviction. And they're, um, you know, they're going, they're, they're, I'm putting away La Basura, but so is everybody else. We are dragging the shit out of them. And so many people have have uh, um, decided to no longer be part of Pride Day at Dodger Stadium because of this disgusting decision to take away the honor that they first bestowed. So anyways, we have an article in the show notes so you can read a little bit more about this basura, but the Dodgers going La Basura. Hey, Tamarindo Amiguis, Brenda here interrupting myself to let you know that since the recording of this episode, the Dodgers have apologized to the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. They walked back their terrible choice to uninvite them in the first place, and the Sisters have graciously accepted the Dodger apology. And I think what it took is so many organizations standing with the Sisters and properly scolding the Dodgers. And I'm very glad that the Dodgers have walked back their terrible decision to uninvite them in the first place. Yeah. What about you, Ana Sheila? Que van la basura for you? So what's going in the basura for me is just greed at, at TV networks. And um, what we're seeing is the vulnerability of TV and film writing as a sustainable career. And of course, who's impacted most by this are LGBTQ plus and, and BIPOC um, writers, um, they're the most vulnerable because they don't have the same generational wealth and privilege that, you know, white writers do. And, and so at the result, what's very vulnerable right now um, for the future is is the representation that I feel like we've been fighting so hard to have um, in front and, and behind the camera. And, and I'll uh, there's an article that I'll link in the notes, but I'll just read something really quickly. Um, the shift in streaming has led to the proliferation of mini of mini rooms, smaller writer rooms that marginalize writers um, that have shut, shut them out of opportunities and limit pathways to higher paying jobs. And so according to the WGA, the share of writers working at minimum pay is up from 33% a decade ago, nearly to half today, as the median pay for writer producers has fallen by 23% when it's adjusted for inflation. So I'm, I'm really scared. I'm really scared. Um, as y'all know, there's a strike happening right now and, and, and I'm scared about what this means for representation, what it means for all the folks in our, in our communities that, that, that are writers today. Yeah, how, how are you feeling about this, Brenda? Yeah, I mean, this is not our lane, but we can happily give you all resources. But we, we've had the great pleasure of speaking to a lot of writers that are queer, that are um, people of color, and we appreciate and honor their work. But this is also just about workers. Right? We care about workers' rights. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're, we definitely support their right to protest. And we're, it's exciting to see what's happening right now because now the actors are, are getting together. So there's really great momentum. And it's, it's really exciting to see what is possible. And when folks come together, 
So I am hopeful, you know, it, it's a, it's, I think you've re- uh, elevated some of the reasons and the importance and why that, 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 why it's a bummer that why things need to change. But I also want to say that I'm very hopeful, right? That I'm seeing a lot of hope in the, in the unity and folks being vocal and getting these issues out. And for those of us that are not in the industry to be able to be sympathetic and to also uplift and support th- this, because it really is about the stories that we get to see and and stories we know change culture and it's all connected it's all connected so absolutely we stand with the the, the um, WGA we stand with the actors that are also starting to strike um, that are potentially going to strike so yeah we gotta we gotta support our homies out there yeah y'all this is like Brenda said this is a really vulnerable time but it also feels like an important moment for for the future of workers rights as as things evolve and and uh, let's get involved the way, in any way that we can yeah and speaking of that this is sort of leads into my calma so speaking uh, about workers rights let me tell you what's bringing me calma because look yeah sometimes as you can see the way I spiral when I get into my basuras you know the shit is nasty and it's it's disgusting and it could weigh a lot on us. So it's good to get some calma by looking at the facts as and it, a call back to earlier, Anna Sheila. And here's the facts. There's some good shit happening. So let me tell you something that's bringing me calma right now. And it's the um the UC undocumented student led movement opportunity for all campaign. So I'll give you the Cliff's Notes, if you will. I don't know if young kids even know what that means, Cliff's Notes. But here's the summary. And again, we're going <laughs> to um, we're going to give you some resources in the show notes. so You know more, more about what I'm talking about. But a this is an opportunity, the opportunity for all campaign. It, it This is according to the L.A. Times seeks to test a, quote, novel theory developed by UCLA law scholars that argues that a 1986 federal law barring the hiring of immigrants does not specifically include states or the UC as a state entity. It is it, it, in its language establishing employer sanctions and therefore does not apply to them. So what does that mean? It means that there is a legal challenge here that says this federal law should not apply to states and states entities, which means that should the opportunity for all campaign reach its objective, then I mean, this could have amazing ripple effects. But what it means is that then the UC, the students, the undocumented students that at the, at the UCs could now be able to be employed at the UCs. Why is this important? This is important because a lot of the young people entering college right now do not qualify for DACA. And there is something like 24,000 students a year graduating in California that do not qualify for DACA and so therefore are not able to work. If the Opportunity for All campaign reaches its goal, then that's, that's going to be important because now these young people are maybe able to work. And also, and it could mean a lot more. It could be it could go well beyond the UC system. So a lot of legal scholars, a lot of immigration experts are really, really paying attention to this. And we ought to as well. But there's been a um, recent win. And the recent win is that the, uni- the University of California Regents saying they support an equitable education for all unanimously agreed Thursday to find a pathway to enact a bold policy to hire students who lack legal status and work permits. So this is amazing. And let me, one more thing, too, about how important this is. When these young people are entering college that do not qualify for DACA, they're, they're often shut out of a lot of scholarships and opportunities. They need to work because college is super, super expensive. I'm sure that another issue that is probably connected to this because it's all connected. There's also so many students that live on, they're actually homeless because that's how expensive it is to go to college. So they, all students need to have an opportunity to be able to afford college and, and being able to work is obviously going to help with that. So this is incredible and it's giving me calma because it is an example of 
what can happen. There is some hope here. So you all pay attention to this. That is amazing, amazing news. We needed to hear that. Thank you so much, Brenda, for sharing that with me and and all of our listeners. And what is your calma? All right. So my calma um, is basketball and and just sports in in, in general. So something I like to, I love to ask people, what are things that bring you sounds, places, things that bring you instant joy? And for me, one of the things that brings me instant joy and and calma is is, um, the sound of the swish in 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 a basketball hoop. Um, yeah, so just basketball, uh, also tennis. I got to play tennis yesterday with my little brother. It's something that really, um, brings us together. My dad introduced us to tennis when we were little. Um, we, he bought us rack, like a dollar rackets at a garage sale and we would just play every weekend. And so it's something that feels really special to, to both of us because it's something that my dad, um, introduced and, and it's something that me and my brother get to continue to share. And, and, and yeah, so it's special for me because of that, but also tennis. I also love, I also love the feeling of, of striking the, the ball with a racket when you hit it really hard. It's very much a stress relief when you hit a ball really hard and you hit it well. So y'all, if you don't, if you haven't tried tennis, you know, and you're looking for some kind of stress relief or some way to take out your anger, tennis is actually a really great way to do that. So yeah, just sports and sounds that bring me joy. Yeah. Giving me calma this week. Get us get some sound effects, yeah. y'all, for that swish. <laughs> awesome. Well, that was, you give me so much calma, Anna Sheila. You listeners give me so much calma. We hope that you all have a beautiful, whatever time of day you all are having as you're listening to this, have that beautiful time. And please write us a review, share this episode with a friend. It's always such a joy to get to talk to you, Anna Sheila, to get to see all of you. Okay, actually, I don't see you, but I imagine you in my mind. And uh, we love you. We should start doing that. Yeah. We love you. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right, y'all. Ponte un suéter. Ciao. Un abrazo. Besos. Ciao. Tamarindo Podcast is Brenda Gonzalez and Anasheila Victorino with production support from Josie Melendez and Augusto Martinez Delgado of Sonoro Media. Our theme song is by Jeff Ricards. If you like our show, please rate and review Tamarindo Podcast or share an episode with a friend. Cuando mi arrendador dijo que el alquiler podría ser más barato si fuéramos amigos con beneficios. Había oído hablar de acoso sexual en el lugar de trabajo, pero en mi casa eso es discriminación en la vivienda basada en el sexo. La gente de bienes raíces dijo que estaríamos más cómodos viviendo en un vecindario diferente con gente como nosotros. Por suerte conocíamos nuestros derechos. Es ilegal asustar a los posibles propietarios para que se alejen de ciertos vecindarios en función de raza o nacionalidad. Si usted cree que sufrió discriminación o tiene preguntas sobre sus derechos, comuníquese con Fair Housing Foundation, Fundación de Vivienda Justa, al 800-446-3247 o también en línea en fhfca.org. La vivienda justa es su derecho. Este es un anuncio de servicio público de Fair Housing Foundation y respaldado por el Departamento de Vivienda y Desarrollo Urbano HUD bajo la subvención de FIPPI FPEI 220099. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.